This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. Pleasure to talk today about Henri Jackson, episode 11 of the series. Henri Jackson, special interest of mine. I've been intrigued by him for decades, literally. Half a century, in fact. Amazing, amazing individual. Hard to begin. There's so many entry points with him. This extraordinary gentleman who was Louis Riel's secretary in 1884-85 in in the Northwest, in present-day Saskatchewan. I think, though, the best one for me is to start when he's twice the age he was at the time of his activities with Riel, of his, of his participation in the movement to obtain self-government for Western Canada, in his movement to obtain justice for the Western farmers and for the first Indigenous peoples of the West. I'm going to start when he was double the age, when he came back. He came back to Western Canada in 1907-1908, and that's the point of departure for me. Now twice the age he was at the time of his first residence in the Canadian West in the mid-1880s, Will Jackson, now known as Honoré Jackson, had changed physically. He now had a receding hairline, graying hair, and had added pounds to a small, once-lean frame. But, this is the important thing, his political principles, his commitment to the exploited and the oppressed, remained unaltered. The man who had served as Riel's secretary came back to the Northern Plains after a 22-year absence, specifically to record the Métis and First Nations version of the Troubles of 1885. Riel's ex-secretary, former secretary in 1885, found the Canadian West in 1907 completely transformed. During his absence, hundreds of thousands of European and American immigrants had come to the Canadian prairies, increasing the population over 1,000%. Two years earlier, the federal government had created two new provinces, Saskatchewan and Alberta, a political change that pleased Honoré greatly. As early as 1885, he had called for provincial status for the Northwest Territories. Let's go back to the beginnings. In 1882, Will Jackson, as he was known then, a former University of Toronto student who completed three years of a classics degree, moved west to join his parents, who had moved to Prince Albert in present-day Saskatchewan. Only six years earlier, in 1876, the First Nations had made treaty with the Canadian government, a huge area of what is now central Saskatchewan and Alberta was the area of the treaty, Treaty 6, very important. So the First Nations had just made this agreement with the Canadian government. Their understanding was somewhat different than that the Canadian government's was. They thought that they were retaining their, their sovereignty. 
Canadian government believed they were surrendering it. This misunderstanding has plagued us ever since. But in any case, the perception of the non-Indigenous settlers was that the land had been purchased and now was theirs for the taking. So they came and the Jackson family, his name at this point was Will Jackson, came west. His dad established uh, farm implements business in Prince Albert. And Honoré, uh, Will, later to become Honoré, came out to join them in 1882. The family had come from Wingham, which is 150 kilometers north of Toronto. And there, his dad's business, actually, he'd gone bankrupt. And that was the reason Will had to stop his university. He had to because family, well, they had to move and and uh, Will had to stop. He almost finished his university degree, but uh, one le- year left outstanding. In any case, he came to Prince Albert. Once he arrived, he was obviously the best educated, or almost perhaps my standing, the best educated man in the area. And the Settlers Union asked him to become their secretary, which he accepted. Will Jackson, as he was known then, dedicated himself to fighting for better representation of the Western farmers, a better deal for the farmer in every respect. The the the, the maladministration of the West was atrocious in his opinion. The Canadian government had changed the route of the railway instead of going to Prince Albert. Now it had been extended to the south. There were all kinds of discontents, and Will decided to take the charge to fight for justice for the Western farmer. At the same time, he was aware of the discontent amongst amongst the indigenous people, particularly the Métis. The Métis had a major settlement south of Prince Albert in an area around Batoche, in the South Saskatchewan River. And they were extremely agitated because their land title was not being respected. The Canadian government was proceeding westward as if the Métis had surrendered their land rights, which was not at all the case. In desperation, the Métis at Batoche had sent a delegation requesting Louis Riel, who had been their champion in the Red River, present-day Manitoba, in 18. 18- 1870, they'd asked him if he'd come back from the United States. And he did. He'd just come. This is when things become quite exciting. Riel's was open to this, an idea of an alliance with the white settlers. And Honoré certainly promoted it. The settlers of the, the Secretary of the Farmers Union became the link between Riel and the white, and the non-indigenous farmers. They planned a joint action. A petition would be sent to the Canadian government. And Will was the gentleman who collected it. All late, Riel uh, came back in the summer of 1884. Throughout the latter part of the 1884, Will, in consultation with Riel, prepared the petition and Will chased all around the Prince Albert area, obtaining signatures for it. At this point, the white settlers and the Métis were united, and Will was the link between them. However, 
that did not continue. The Canadian government did not respond, and in res- and the Métis became increasingly upset, discontented. Will had gone to move and moved to Batoche. He brought with him, incidentally, he idolized the ancient Greeks. He studied classics at the University of Toronto. He had he, he saw these people as the really he just saw them as the people he studied in ancient Greece. These lovers of liberty. That's what he saw in those Metis, in the Metis people. Um, and so he he went and in, in, to help Riel. He lived at Batoche. He brought with him his copy of Plato's Republic, which shows the intensity of his of, of, of his association of these people with the ancient Greeks. Well, w- w- the disappointment was no response. So the Metis were getting extremely upset. And by early 1885, conflict was on the horizon. And it broke out. Will was in a quandary. He was not a Metis. He was settler. And here he is in a situation, he's caught between two sides. What he did was to practice neutrality. He searched for some kind of spiritual answer to this. He had been, his family was very, very strongly Methodist, today's United Church, very strongly Protestant. But in Riel's camp, he turned Catholic. That was a way of approaching closer to the Métis. And in fact, when Riel took the step of publicly proclaiming that he was the leader of a new religion, Honoré, or I should call him, he must keep with his name at this point, Will Jackson accepted it. He took, he accepted Riel's religion and he's trying desperately to keep the two sides together, the Métis and the settlers, and also make an overture to the First Nations. He wants the West to be a place where all groups associate together and work together for equality. That was his dream. Now it's shattered. Violence breaks out in mid-March, and he didn't take up arms, not at all. He He wanted peace, but it was impossible. And so he's at Batoche, and really, I think, for his safety, Riel kept him, well, he was actually a prisoner for several weeks. Well, finally, the struggle is becomes quite intense. Canada sends several thousand soldiers. There's conflict at several spots. Uh, the big campaign for the Canadians is the assault against Batoche, and that takes place in May 1885. Will is... He's not involved at all. He's, he's held as a prisoner, actually, at this point. Um, despite all his efforts for the Métis, he, in this situation, was an unknown quality. And they couldn't. They, this, this was the best answer from their point of view. He was held as a prisoner. When the Canadians took Batoche, May 12th, 1885, they assumed that Will Jackson, who'd been Riel's secretary, was... Had had to, was an insurgent. He had taken a pass, and they took him as a prisoner. He was put with five Métis in a cell, improvised cell in Prince Albert, and uh, the conditions were terrible. He vermin and filth and sleeping on the floor. Everything was terrible. He was treated as a traitor, and this had a major psychological impact on him. One might say this was 
this was indeed the turning point of his life. And in prison, in his cell, he began to associate even more fully with the Métis than before. The Canadian government took the prisoners from Prince Albert to Regina, and there the trials were held, the big one, of course, being Riel's. Will Jackson was tried. His trial, however, was very brief because it was assumed that he was insane. That was the verdict of, and his family, of course, were they wanted to save his life and uh, endorsed it. He had become unstabilized. He had been so taken up with this, he had become, um, he'd accepted Riel's religion. That was evidence of, of instability and uh, enough to make this judgment. It was very, the trial was very quick. Will was in, incensed by this. He said he was, he'd totally conscious of, of his support of Riel and what he was doing and uh, totally opposed this verdict, but nevertheless, it was imposed upon him and he was sent to the insane asylum at Lower Fort Gary, present day, just north of present day Winnipeg and held there. Well, he was, he, he was really quite furious. At the at Lower Fort Gary, Will had a relatively pleasant experience in that he was allowed all the books he wanted, and of course he asked for his 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 favorites, and uh, does and his guitar, and so he's held there. It's light security, but finally he's had enough, and he's worried that Riel, who at this point has been tried and has been sentenced to death, and Will is he's got to do something. He's and what he does is he slips away. The inmate escapes from the institution and traveling overland, it's about several days, he, he takes off from Lower Fort Gary and walks down to the American border and crosses over into Minnesota. In Minnesota, he does what he, he must do. He prepares a telegram to his sister in Winnipeg. She was studying there and sends back this urgent note that he knows Riel is going to be executed and this and it, this is totally the worst mistake that possibly could be made. It will provoke a, a, a resistance even more severe than this occurred. Riel must not be executed. In prison, actually, uh, I shouldn't say in prison, in the insane asylum, Jackson had written a note, an assessment of Riel, and I'll quote it. The oppression of the Aboriginal has been the crying sin of the white race in America, and they have at last found a voice. And he's referring, of course, to Louis Riel. So these feelings are, are more intense than ever before. Will Jackson spoke with a vision modern for his times. And he saw something in Riel that his non-Indigenous contemporaries did not see. And Jackson, Jackson did. He was the visionary. Okay. Slipping away then, uh, Wills reached the United States from in Minnesota. He sends a telegram to his sister. His message to the prime minister is, quote, and he asks his sister to send this telegram to Johnny MacDonald. If you hang Riel, you will provoke a more dangerous and atrocious outbreak. He is the sole mouthpiece of the Aborigines and must be heard. Let him free. 
and I am willing to be shot in this place. Well, it was too late. Well, if it would have had any effect at all. Will's telegram was sent and was published in the actually in the in the Winnipeg in the Manitoba Free Press. It was actually published in the Toronto Globe on May seventeenth, his his dispatch from Minnesota. However, that was a day late. The danging of Riel had occurred November sixteenth, the day before. Well, this is the turning. I, I mentioned a turning point. Well, let's go back to that because here's where it really becomes dramatic. Riel's execution led Will to renounce his race. In Chicago, where he decided now to make his home, he's now he began to self-identify as a Métis and changed his name to the French-sounding Honoré Jackson. He devoted the remainder of his life to fighting for the working class and the indigenous peoples of North America. And he did so identifying himself as a Métis. It had had that much, that much an effect on him. Well, in Chicago, Will becomes a labor leader. I kid you not. He's articulate. He knows how to write. A little bit verbose at times, but he's he's got a talent. And he does uh, works for the union newspaper, um, does some construction business, associates himself fully with the working class in Chicago. And these are very troubled times in Chicago. The great Haymarket strike is shortly after he, he arrives there. It's a very agitated labor scene. And Honoré is totally, he's totally uh, with, with the labor class. Spiritually, in Chicago, he accepted a new faith, the Baha'i faith, the new world religion from Persia, which stressed the simplicity of life and service to others. He liked especially the Baha'i's emphasis on the need to abolish the extremes of wealth and poverty, and he became a strong member of the community in Chicago. Now, good news. <laughs> Honoré, at the age of 40, finds a life partner, or almost a life partner, because unfortunately, they at, towards the end, they did live separate lives. But at this stage, all is good. And at the age of 40, Honoré, uh, excuse me, his name, he's taken the name Honoré Jackson. So Will Jackson, I'll now refer to exclusively as Honoré Jackson. At the age of 40, Honoré married for the first time. His partner was M.A. Montfort, an attractive Chicago teacher, six years younger, who was also active in the Baha'i community. On account of her poor health, this former teacher, in shortly after they married, left teaching and switched to office work, usually in the business correspondence field in which she excelled. She is, Emmy's very interesting. She loved to read, especially the works of Shakespeare, so much so she once took a course on his plays at the University of Chicago. A reading of Shakespeare's plays, she argued, enriched an individual, quote, in a real way to prepare one for meeting and understanding crises that do come into everyone's life. Another example of her power, intellectual powers, in the early 1920s, she made this, this very in-depth commentary of H.G. Wells, over 800 pages long, Outline of History. The famous British author's, author's Chronicle of the History of the World from the Earth's Origin to the First World War. Here's what Amy said of it. 
It presents the whole field of history, broadly, logically, fully, and in most fascinating style. It offers the most magnificent survey of civilization in the making and is an education in history, finer and larger than that to be obtained from any other source. My goodness, what's just so articulate. M.A. had a wide social circle. She responded well to new ideas and kept informed of contemporary social issues. On occasion, she helped, in her, husband word, in her husband's words, so I'll now quote Honoré, she helped, quote, a millionaire lady friend of ours in Northside society to put a benefit on for a maternity hospital for young, for unmarried young women. With pride, Honoré commented in a 1906 letter, it is a sadly needed institution and a fitting climax to Amy's many good works in this wicked city. He's fully supported her work. In addition to her participation in Baha'i organizations, Amy belonged to the Women's Civic Club, a statewide group that fought for the vote for women. And here's a very interesting anecdote. A friend of the Jacksons in neighboring Oak Park, next to Chicago, a young American architect, later to be renowned for his own style of residential construction, known as his prairie style, was a good friend. His name was Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright and his wife, Carolyn, enjoyed the Jacksons' company. In December 1910, the Wrights had an enjoyable dinner with them. Later, M.A. recorded what Frank said about her husband. Wonderful quote coming up in Amy's words. Quote, she recalled that Frank said, he was much interested in Honoré's recital of events and said he wished he had the money to back Honoré, to give him complete freedom to follow any trail he chose and sit back and he would watch Honoré play the game. He says he can't imagine a livelier, more interesting play. Emmy's conclusion, and he's right. Honoré's progressive and enlightened ideas about the equal position of women in society pleased M M Amy, Amy a great deal. She thought the world of her husband, as she wrote in 1911, quote, he is not only abreast of the most modern thought, but in the front rank with the most radical. He is the most splendid chap, and I am very proud of him. Yet, she recognized one personal shortcoming, his refusal to make money for himself. Amy added, quote, to me, monetary reward for legitimate effort is both interesting and attractive. To him, it seems to be the repellent element. <laughs> From 1907 to 1908, the point which we began this episode, the Jacksons made an extended visit to Western Canada to see Honoré's family in Prince Albert, to talk to Western labor and farm groups, and Honoré's other purpose, to gather notes for a history planned to write on the troubles of 1885. Jean Riel, the son of Louis Riel, who Honoré had last seen at age two, in 1907, 1908, lived in the Winnipeg area. He encouraged his former, father's former secretary in a note to, quote, 
write the history of the Northwest Rebellion of 1885 because you were an eyewitness and you can tell the truth. That quote comes from Montreal's journal, a newspaper, La Presse. And it's a very powerful one. I've translated it from the French. It was in an article in 1912. Mm -hmm. To the Métis, Honoré was a revenant, someone who had come back to them out of their distant past. Well, Honoré collected uh, luggage full of notes and even some photos of, of his intended intended illustrations for his book. And uh, he, Amy and he returned to Chicago in 1908. There, Honoré remained active in the Chicago Federation of Labor, worked as an editorial writer on their monthly publication, the Union Labor Union labor advocate, and was a, a local personality in the labor field. Years later, Lloyd Lewis, a journalist and historian, recalled what Otto McFeely, labor editor of the Chicago Evening News, had written of Honoré at the turn of the century. McFeely spoke of him, quote, as very learned and very cultured. He added, although the police and middle-class Chicagoans might dismiss him as a crank, quote, the intelligentsia, the bankers, the college professors, and the labor union men, they knew he was worth listening to, for he could not only talk classic English with an Indian eloquence, but he has an immense amount of learning. Honoré became the advocate of many progressive causes in Chicago until the end of the First World War, when he moved to New York City. Amy uh, did not follow unwilling to endure his Spartan living accommodations. Quite early in their relationship, she realized the impact of the troubles of 1885 on her husband. Quote, that period made a changed man of him and accounts for much in him that is odd, but which I have accepted because I understood the reasons and the causes back of all. Amy died in the early 1930s. Honoré loved New York City with its legendary museums and its libraries, quote, with every facility to help gain knowledge on every subject in the universe, end of quote. Yet he remained the alert social critic. He wrote, On the surface, it looks as if the poor had so great a chance as the rich to acquire knowledge. But, in reality, he added, since the hours... These are these institutions from are open from from about nine or ten, on a.m. Only the leisure class can take advantage of them. In the nineteen forties, Honoré's life mission became the establishment of a library for the First Nations, in Saskatchewan. Although Riel over a century through Riel over a century and a half earlier, he had met Big Bear and other important First Nations leaders. He felt drawn to the First Nations. He bought old books in New York City and pamphlets and saved old newspapers wherever he can, whatever he considered important, and stored them with his notes taken years over many years in his basement apartment. Honoré's dream in the 1940s became to transport his library to Western Canada and give it to the Indigenous people. They could use it to educate themselves. That was his dream, one which died on December the 12th, 1951. 
On that day, his landlord evicted his frail 90-year-old tenant on the ground that he could no longer perform his janitorial duties to earn his lodgings. He claimed that Honoré's paper mountain constituted a fire hazard. Honoré's library, three tons of it, went first to the street, next to New York City dump. In poor health and broken in spirit, he died in New York's Bellevue Hospital one month later on January the 10th, 1952. December the 12th, the New York Daily News took a photo of Honoré, which they ran the next day. It shows Honoré Jackson, a white-bearded old man wearing a white, a wide-brimmed black hat with an army blanket draped around him. He sits totally bewildered in front of a mountain of stuffed carton boxes and bundled newspapers, a pile six feet high, 10 feet deep, and 35 feet long. The 90-year-old had just been evicted from his janitorial and basement lodgings. Once again, heartbroken, Honoré, as I mentioned before, died a month later. The New York Herald Tribune reported on his death that he had served in 1885 as an aide to Louis Riel. <laughs> the New York Herald Tribune didn't even know enough about Riel to be able to spell his name correctly. And so they have written his name, R-I-E-H-L, Riel, Riel. The Herald Tribune with the incorrect spelling of Riel's name, concludes the article with this statement. Riel, or Riel, was his hero. In short, Riel was his hero, and how true that was. So, the life of an extraordinary individual, a visionary, on the First Nations file, an individual well ahead of it, well, an individual well ahead of his times. Thank you.